Jim Caldwell was the head coach of the Detroit Lions from 2014 to 2017. And if there were ever a golden age of Detroit Lions football, this was it. Caldwell had three out of his four seasons as the Lions head coach were were winning seasons. They won more games than they lost for three of the four seasons when Caldwell was the head coach. Nevertheless, under Jim Caldwell, the Lions only made the playoffs one time. They did not win that playoff game. And even though they had the opportunity at the end of the season, I think twice during his four years, they had the opportunity to actually win the division. They didn't do it. So even though Jim Caldwell was an upgrade over most of the Lions coaches that they've had during my lifetime, he was not by any means a spectacular success by overall standards. Therefore, he was fired in 2017. And the man who fired him... Lions General Manager Bob Quinn said that he fired Jim Caldwell for this reason. We didn't beat the really good teams. Our record was above average, but our record against the best teams in the league has not been that good. Quinn went on to say this. At the end of the day, it's wanting to take this team to the next level. So mediocrity was not good enough for Bob Quinn. He wanted to go to the next level. And then he added this. To me, that's winning championships. That's winning playoff games. That's winning the Super Bowl. So this was his justification for firing Jim Caldwell. And the assumption behind that is that Quinn, the general manager, the guy who actually drafts players and signs players, had done enough. He'd he'd put together a good enough team that a better coach should be able to win. That's the implication. To Quinn, the Lions weren't winning because the coach wasn't doing a good enough job, and that's why he fired him. But he also then, therefore, blamed him for the Lions not being a better team. Following the uh, firing of Jim Caldwell, Bob Quinn hired his buddy from the Patriots, Matt Patricia. And as you know, probably if you follow the lines at all, or just because you live in this area, it's been a disaster. He was fired right after a disastrous Thanksgiving Day game this year. And under his almost three seasons as Lions head coach, Matt Patricia did not have even one winning season. And so we went from mediocrity to the basement, again, where we're very familiar, uh, of the NFL. Now, during the final days of the Matt Patricia era, as the Lions head coach. He was asked a lot of questions about his job security and how he could show up for work every day and claim to be the answer to the Lions' problems. And so anyone who has to answer questions like that, I mean, that's that's like a terrible, that's an awkward position to be in. I don't know what you say, but here's what he said to one of those things, to one of those questions. He says, certainly, I think when I came to Detroit, there was a lot of work to do. That's not a direct statement of blame, but it's a pretty indirect, and the implication is pretty clear. And that's the way he took it. National media pundits took it as him blaming, again, Jim Caldwell, who was three years removed as head coach. Former players who played for Jim Caldwell took it as him blaming Jim Caldwell, and angry fans like me took it as him blaming Jim Caldwell. And so just to review... We have two men who were absolute failures in their roles with the Detroit Lions. And what did they do? They blamed a successful coach. And that's because that's what people do when we fail. This is human nature. This is a human tendency. When people 
fail at something in life, we have at least a tendency to blame others. When people fail, we tend to blame others for it. That's what these men were doing. Now, sometimes when we do this, we blame others categorically. That is completely. That is, we put all of the blame for something on someone else and try to disavow any blame for ourselves at all. Other times, though, we just try to spread the blame around. We might take some blame for ourselves, but we also want to point out all the other ways in which other people are responsible for what happened. But any way you cut it, this is a very common human tendency. And by the way, it goes back to the earliest days of humanity. When man and woman sinned in the Garden of Eden, and the man said, the woman said to God, the woman that you gave me, made me eat it, okay? So this is a very, very fundamental human tendency to blame others when we fail at anything in life. And the Bible tells us in our passage for this morning that not only do we tend to blame others when we fail at things, that some people actually go to the point of blaming God. Some people blame God when they find themselves in the midst of, of temptation. Look with me again at our passage, James chapter 1 and verse 13, where the scripture says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. There it is. There's the attempt to pass the buck. There's the attempt to move the blame off of myself when I am being tempted to do something that's wrong and on to God. It's the opportunity or the, um, the, uh, the tendency that we have to say, well, I may feel temptation to sin or I may have sinned in this area, but if God hadn't put me in this situation, none of this would have ever happened. Some people even blame God for their sins or their temptations. And as James raises this point, as he raises this issue, we need to understand what's going on in the context of um, the book of James. We spent several Sundays looking at James chapter uh, 1, verses 2 through 12, the first paragraph of Scripture in this book of the Bible. And I hope you remember that the focus of that paragraph was trials. The Bible tells us that God allows our faith to be put to the test in order to refine it and to purify it. And God has given us certain tools to help us in moments of trial. But the word that is translated testing or trial in the first part of this paragraph in James chapter 1 verses 2 through 12 that talks about trials, the same Greek word is translated temptation here. It's the same, it's a, it's a related form of the same word. And so while James is moving on from talking about the problems of life and how they try our faith as Christians, he's now moving on to how we feel tempted when we're given the opportunity to sin. He uses the same word to describe both the trials of life and the temptations that we face in this life. And that's why James begins by saying, when tempted, don't blame God. Because he wants us to understand that although God allows us into areas and into problems in life that test our faith, that doesn't mean that God is giving us or wants to give us the opportunity to feel tempted to sin in those moments. 
In other words, God is sovereign over our lives. And as such, he allows us as Christians to encounter problems and difficulties in life. And that's part of his testing of our faith, to strengthen it and prove it. But in the midst of those tests in life, there is always the opportunity to sin. There is always the opportunity to do something that is disobedient to God's word. And someone who is not thinking clearly, someone who is not thinking biblically, someone who is human and has a tendency to shift blame anyway, might look at the moments of trial that we face in life and the opportunities to sin in those moments of trials and try to shift the blame back to God. And so that's why James pivots now from talking about trials to temptations and begins by saying, when you are tempted to sin, don't blame God for the, for the tendency that you have, the temptation that you have to sin. Now, why shouldn't we blame God? Well, verse 13 tells us very explicitly why not. Look again at what it says. After telling us no one should blame God, he uses the word for, and this gives the explanation. And he says, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. There are two related reasons why God is not responsible when you feel tempted to sin or when you sin. There are two related uh, reasons. The first one says, for God cannot be tempted by evil. And we have to stop right here and we have to get really clear on what temptation is. The first thing that James tells us when he says we can't blame God for our sins or our temptations is that God himself cannot be tempted by evil. Now, if you're thinking about scripture and about the life of Christ, you might think, well, wait a minute, Jesus was tempted in the desert. It was an essential part of his mission to be tempted and to succeed at temptation. And since he is God in the human flesh, since he is the second person of God who came and became a man and he was tempted, then how can James say God cannot be tempted by evil and Mark or Matthew and Luke tell us that Jesus was tempted by the devil. And the answer to that is that temptation has two sides to it. It has two aspects to it. All right. This is, I think this is really important to get clear on. There are two aspects to temptation. One is the external opportunity. And the other is the internal desire. Temptation has an external opportunity. But it only works when it corresponds with an internal desire. Here's the analogy I've used before. I don't like berries or things that rhyme with berry like cherry. Okay? And so let's make up a story and let's presume that I'm on a diet of some sort and that sweets are out of the question and let's say that I go to some event, it's, maybe it's something here at church, maybe you invite me over to your home in non-COVID times, whatever, and you bake a cherry pie and you cut a nice slice of it and put some whipped cream on top of it and you offer it to me. Okay, your offer to me is a temptation. It's a temptation for me to leave my diet. It's a temptation for me to transgress and do what is wrong by eating a dessert that's not on the list. But since I don't like cherry, there ain't going to be any internal desire to correspond to that. All right, It's going to be very easy for me to say no to the, to the external temptation because I don't have the internal desire to do it. Change it to French silk pie and well, everything changes completely. Okay, but, but if it's cherries or berries or other kinds of fruit pie, 
It's not hard for me to say no. You are trying to tempt me with your external opportunity, but the internal opportunity doesn't correspond to that, so temptation really isn't happening. Now, when James says God cannot be tempted by evil, he's not saying that God can't listen to an external opportunity to sin. That's what happened to Jesus. Satan brought the external opportunity to sin to him. What God isn't tempted by, he doesn't have that internal desire to sin. In fact, he has an internal revulsion to sin. Because God is holy, because God is perfect morally, because God hates sin with all of his might, no external opportunity will ever arouse God, will ever begin God thinking, maybe I should correspond, or maybe I should take this opportunity to sin. It can't happen. And so that's what James is saying when he's saying, God cannot be tempted by evil. But notice the second part of the phrase, the second reason why we can't blame God for our temptation. And that is this. He says, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. And here's the point. As a holy God, God is not in the business of taking unholy things to other people any more than I'm in the business of baking cherry pies and trying to get other people to get off their diets. Why would I do that? I wouldn't. And nor does God. God does not put us into situations that test us in order to try to get us to fall into sin. That's, that's antithetical to who God is. It's the opposite of his character, the opposite of his personality. It's abhorrent to his holiness. And so while it's a very human tendency of us to blame God in our moments of temptation, James tells us, don't even try it. Because God hates sin with all of his might, and he'll never try to get you to sin. Now, before I move on to the next um, issue here, the next point, I should have already shown you this. God is not to blame for our attraction for sin. That's where the external, internal thing comes from, okay? It's not God's fault that sin has that internal arousal for us. That's what James is trying to tell us in verse 13. But let me just, again, situate this in the context of the first paragraph of James chapter 1. That's about trials. And I said already that every trial creates or it could create the opportunity for us to be tempted to sin. It's not God's purpose in putting us in trials. But there's always the opportunity that we might be tempted to sin as we deal with the trials that come common to human life. And I don't normally quote other people during my messages for multiple reasons, but sometimes every now and then somebody just says it so well that it's just, it's better to just quote what they say. All right. And so that's what I'm going to do here. I'm going to try to, I'm going to quote from a New Testament scholar named Douglas Moo. He's an excellent uh, New Testament scholar. And he does a really good job explaining how the external uh, tests of our faith could create internal or could create at least external temptations for us. All right, so let me just read his quote before I uh, butcher it any further, okay? Here's what Douglas Moose said in his commentary on James. He says, financial difficulty, that's a trial, can tempt us to question God's providence in our lives. That's blaming God. The death of a loved one can tempt us to question God's love for us. The suffering of the righteous poor 
and the ease of the wicked rich can tempt us to question God's justice or even his existence. Thus, testing almost always includes temptation, and temptation itself is a test. Do you see how this all connects together? And then he finishes and says this, persevering under trial, which is what verse 12 tells us to do. Blessed is the man who perseveres in trial, because when he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life. Persevering under trial, Moose says, demands that we overcome these kinds of temptations. And so while it is true that in the sovereignty of God, we do find ourselves in situations where we might be given the opportunity to do evil, we might feel the temptation to do evil, it is not God's fault that we feel that way. Our temptation and the sin that often accompanies temptation for us is not the fault of God. And so we can't blame God for our temptation. Now, if it's not God's fault, and yet if God is sovereign over everything and allows us to get into situations where we do encounter temptation, then where does the fault lie? Why is it that we often feel tempted, whether in trials or not, in this life? And the answer is from within. The problem that causes us to feel tempted is that we are sinners. Our fallen nature is to blame for our attraction to sin. Look with me at verses 14 and 15. James 1.14 says, but, so this is in contrast to God tempting us, which we can't say. He says, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Where does the temptation to sin come from? It comes from within. It comes from the fallen desires of fallen human nature that is common to every single one of us. And the reason that you and I feel tempted to sin, and the reason that you and I give in to temptation to sin, is that in our hearts, we are cherry-loving people. Okay, in our hearts, we desire sin because we have a fallen human nature. And notice this word dragged away and enticed. These are words from fishing and from hunting. And they describe how a fisherman or a hunter will get the prey that he's trying to get out into a place where it can be captured. This is what the external opportunities do for us. They arouse that evil desire within that pulls us like a magnet to the external opportunity and puts us in a vulnerable situation where our desire for sin, our sin nature is aroused, and often we follow through and act on that sinful desire, and sin is created. The external opportunities around us excite our internal desires for sin. Now let me connect this all again together. God puts us in trials. He does not cause us to be tempted. So why are we tempted? It's because we have these internal desires within, and here's the point. We live in a fallen world and we're fallen beings. Which means there is no place in this world where we are safe from temptation. Where we are safe from our internal uh, desire to sin being aroused. In other words, no matter where God allows us to go in this life, 
We're going to face temptation, not because God puts temptations there. He doesn't, but because we're fallen and we live in a fallen world. And even if you were put locked away in solitary confinement and had no contact with any other human beings, no contact with any media, no opportunity to do anything but sit in your cell, your sin nature would still arouse you to think and desire things that are disobedient to God. That's why God can't be blamed. Nothing that happens to you in this life can can wall you off and separate you from your own sin nature. You carry that with you wherever you go. And so do I. The reason why we fall into sin, the reason why we struggle with temptation, though we might try to shift the blame to others, the blame is not with others. The blame is within. We are fallen human beings in a fallen world. And a fallen world is constantly dangling those external opportunities, those external temptations. And because we resonate with them in our hearts, we are drawn to them like a fish to bait. And so this is where the fault lies in temptation. This is where you and I should look when we fail to live up to God's holy and righteous standards. This is what we should think about when we think about dealing with our own depravity. It's not God's fault that you sinned this week. It's not God's fault that you're playing around with sin in your mind. It's your fault and it's mine because we are fallen people living in a fallen world. Now, because we are fallen people living in a fallen world, that means that our fallen nature is constantly trying to deceive us about the source of our attention to evil. Why is it that we feel this attraction to evil? It's because we're fallen. Why do we blame God or blame other people when we fall or feel the attraction? It's because of our fallen human nature. Our fallen human nature lies to us on a regular basis, and it is so good at lying to us that we think what it says is true. Now, we're going to come back to this passage next Sunday, but I need to dip into the rest of the verses to show this to you. Verse 14 tells us how temptation happens. It happens when we are dragged away by our own evil desires and enticed. And then verse 15 tells us how the process of temptation works itself out so that sin manifests. It says, like a woman giving birth, eventually conceiving and giving birth, it says, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. There's a process that moves from temptation to the consequences of sin. And that's explained for us in verse 15, and we'll come back to this in more detail next Sunday. But before we go away from the passage this morning, and before we think about how it applies to our lives, we need to look at verse 16, because verse 16 is the command on which this entire paragraph of Scripture hinges. It's the foundation on which all of it is built. And it simply says this, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. The problem that you and I face in temptation is that we're going to be deceived. We're deceived if we think God is the one tempting us. Or that it is somehow God's fault that we fell into temptation or into sin. We're deceived if we think it's somebody else's fault. Somebody who gave us that that external enticement to sin. If we think it's their fault that we sin, we're deceived. 
and we're deceiving ourselves. And if we think we could cut ourselves off from the world, wall ourselves off from the external opportunities, and then we would be holy people, we're deceiving ourselves. Because the Bible says in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? By the way, the next verse says, I, the Lord, search the mind. So God does. God understands the deceitfulness of the human heart. And that's why he gave us this passage of scripture. He gave it to us to help lift the veil of deceitfulness off of our eyes. To help us understand that our temptations to sin are not somebody else's fault. They're rather our own hearts that thirst for sin and lust after sin. And so when we think about temptation, we must always realize that when we fail, people tend to blame others. And some people, in fact, blame God for their temptation and their sin. But God is not to blame for our sins. We must take full responsibility if we're going to deal with sin. Now, here's the great truth, though. And here's where we move away from James for a moment and think about this in the context of the entire teaching of Scripture. You and I have a tendency to blame God, maybe, for our temptations and our sins in order to try to remove ourselves from the consequences of them, right? That's why people make up excuses. In a legal context, when they're putting on a defense and they try to cast blame on somebody else, it's to get out from the consequences of their um, their breaking the law. It's to try to keep from going to prison or whatever. When you and I get caught in sin... And there are consequences in this life. One of the reasons why we try to deflect blame or even blame other people is because we want to avoid the consequences of our sin. And although James says we should never blame God for our sins, the truth that's at the heart of our faith, what we call the gospel, is that although God is not to blame for our sins, he did take the penalty for them. We want to avoid the penalty by shifting the blame to God. And God says, I'm not going to take the blame, but I will take the fall for what you did. And that's the truth that I want us to think about next, biblically speaking. God is not to blame for your temptation. But even though he's not to blame, and even though you and I should and could and justly would bear the penalty for our sins ourselves, God himself took the penalty for our sins. And the Bible teaches this over and over again in multiple passages of Scripture. Here's one of them from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, where the Scripture says, He himself, that's Christ, bore our sins in his body on the cross. Do you understand the, the, the immense truth that is packed in that phrase? The verse I just read said, sin when it is finished leads to death. And the Bible says that is the wages of sin, that that being cut off, separated from God forever is what we deserve for our sins. The Bible says that because you and I would have to pay for all eternity for our sins. And yet because God is loving, God did something that we could never do for ourselves. In the person of Jesus, God, the second person, came into this world. He became a man. And he lived a perfect life. He passed the external temptations that were brought to him with flying colors. 
so that he could prove and demonstrate his full humanity. And yet at the end of his life, he was crucified like one of the worst sinners. He was treated like one of the worst sinners who had ever lived, even though he was perfect. Why? So that even though he would not take the blame for our sin and temptation, he would take the penalty for it. This is why Jesus died on the cross. And this is the central idea, the central pillar of our faith. That although you and I deserve justly the wrath of God for our sins, and we have no one to blame but ourselves, God came in the person of Christ to bear the penalty of sin for us. That's what uh, 1 Peter 2.24, the first part is saying when it says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. But notice the result that follows in this verse. So that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. I told you that the reason why we are tempted and why we sin is because we carry around with us a heart of darkness, a heart of depravity, a heart that loves sin and is aroused by many opportunities to sin. Jesus came not only to bear the penalty for our sin, but he came to release us, to break the power, the hold, the attraction that sin has for us. And we'll talk next Sunday about how the grace of God does that in our lives as Christians. But I want you to know that there is great hope in Jesus Christ. In fact, he is the only hope to release one from the power of sin and from the penalty of sin. And if you are with us this morning or watching online and you're not a Christian, and hopefully this message has made obvious to you that God is very concerned about your sin. And that there's nothing that you can do to try to shift blame from yourself or atone for it yourself. The good news is that the central message of our faith is this. When you and I couldn't save ourselves and couldn't take the penalty for our sins ourselves, God did in the person of Jesus Christ. And the part of our message that applies to you and to all of us is this. Instead of blaming God for your sins and your temptation, receive his forgiveness as an intentional act of faith. This is what becoming a Christian is. It's not trying to work hard to improve yourself morally. It's not using self-discipline to say no to sin and temptation. It is instead acknowledging that you are guilty before a holy God but realizing that that holy God gave himself to die and take the penalty for your sins. And a person becomes a Christian. You can become a Christian this morning. If you simply turn and in faith receive the forgiveness that Jesus Christ earned and purchased through his death on the cross and now gives to you as a gift by faith. And so if you're not a Christian this morning, let me urge you, to receive the forgiveness of God by faith. Stop trying to shift the blame and try, stop making excuses for your sin. Instead, receive the forgiveness of sin. Jesus paid it all, as the old song says. All you have to do is receive him by faith. But the truth of the matter goes even deeper than this because receiving God's forgiveness as an intentional act of faith, that's how you become a Christian, but it's also how you walk forward 
as a Christian. The gospel pertains to us every day of our lives because every day of our lives, we struggle with the sin nature within. Every day of our lives, we are pulled toward doing what is evil or saying what is wrong or breaking God's commands in a hundred different ways. And because we are still fallen and still struggling with the sin nature within, we still fall. We still sin against God. And so this truth, which is actually the big idea for today, instead of blaming God, receive forgiveness as an intentional act of faith, it not only applies to sinners who need Christ, and I urge you to come to Christ in faith this morning, but it applies to us who have come to Christ. That when you are discouraged and dismayed, not only by the trials of your faith that you encounter in this world, but the sinful ways in which you respond to them. When you feel discouraged about your sin, when you feel guilty before a holy God, and when you feel like giving up, here's what you need to remember. The Bible says, if we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you found yourself this morning or, or you've come to this place and you've been questioning God, you've been blaming God, you've been trying to excuse or deal with the guilt of your sin in one way or another, if you're not a Christian, come to Jesus and just receive his forgiveness as a gift. And if you are a Christian, come to Jesus again. He'll forgive your sins and he'll empower you to change and grow, to deal with that sin nature within. And we'll talk about that more next Sunday. All of this is an intentional act of faith. We have to believe what God says, that we're at fault in the moments of temptation and when we sin. We have to believe that as an intentional act of faith. And we have to believe that God forgives those who come to him seeking forgiveness on the basis of Christ. That too is an intentional act of faith. And so let me urge you, let me encourage you to think about how your life and how your sins have been dealt with by a holy and perfect God, but one who loves you deeply. He won't take responsibility. He won't take the blame for your sin, but he did take the fall for it. And that gives you forgiveness in him as an intentional act of faith.